Hi, I'm Sarah Trott, and welcome to the Fourth Trimester Podcast. I'm a new mama, and this podcast is all about postpartum care for the first few months following birth, the time period also known as the fourth trimester. My postpartum doula, Esther Gallagher, is my co-host. She's a mother, grandmother, perinatal educator, birth and postpartum care provider. Fourth trimester care, our topic, is about the practical, emotional, and social support parents and baby require. And importantly, it helps set the tone for the continuing journey of parenting. Hi, this is Sarah Trott. Welcome back to the Fourth Trimester Podcast. I'm here with my co-host, Esther Gallagher, who is also my postpartum doula, and she is my ongoing friend and someone who I'm so happy to be co-hosting the show with. And we also have a special guest, Amelia Chris, who Esther is going to introduce in a moment. Um, But before she introduces Amelia, I want to remind everyone that we have a website, which is fourthtrimesterpodcast.com. And we have a Facebook page. So please go find us on Facebook at Fourth Trimester Podcast and like our page. We would appreciate that ever so much. And sign up for our newsletter. Uh, That way you can get special notifications when we release a new episode and when we have extra content in between shows for you. So without further ado, over to you, Esther. Hi, everybody. Uh, Yeah, today we have Amelia Chris on our show, and we're pretty thrilled. She's a certified life coach here in the city of San Francisco, where she lives with her husband and they're very opinionated, almost three-year-old, which is hilarious. I remember those opinionated three-year-olds. Um, <laughs> she's a registered drama therapist and director for self-revelatory performances and therapeutic theater, which I think sounds fantastic. And Amelia loves working with new mamas especially around processing the birth experience and integrating this new parent role and reclaiming our whole identities. So, Amelia, tell us what brought you to this work. If you'd like to tell us anything about your postpartum story, feel free. Um, Well, first of all, thank you guys for having me. I'm really happy to be here. Um, and yeah, so people ask me some version of that question a lot. Like, did you work with new moms before you had a kid? Uh, and the answer is no, like postpartum work wasn't really on my radar until I went through it. Um, and then I had some, I had some very serious processing and healing to do around my own experience. Uh, and mostly around like the way I expected it to go and how it actually went. And then this sort of onslaught of feelings of like, I'm not doing it right. It's not good enough. Like all that sort of like what I would shorthand call like mom shame uh, was very surprising to me. Um, So I had to do a lot of work before I could be useful professionally to anyone else, I would say. (laughs) Uh, But I did. And then I sort of had a moment near the when I was out of like the the toughest woods of it, I would say, where I said to myself, like, this is what I'm going to do. Like, this is going to be a new important piece of the work I do in the world is normalizing how intense and ridiculous and amazing this all is. Much like myself over the last 20 
nine, 30 years. Yeah, cool. <laughs> yeah. I love it. Uh, I just feel like every time I turn around, it just feels like this very notion has finally caught hold in the U.S. that this is a thing that we have to contend with and we have to acknowledge culturally and we have to create uh, uh, new slash integrated uh, approaches too because we don't know much about the traditional way of going through these processes. So good for you, Amelia. Um, Thank you. You too. Good for all of us. Yeah. So Amelia, is that to say that before you became a mom yourself, you were doing the same kind of work, like life coach sort of stuff, but you weren't really focused on moms? Yeah, I would say that's about right. So my original training is in psychotherapy and particularly in creative arts therapy, drama therapy. Um, And I I love that work and was already training in it and doing it. And then the coaching piece came a little bit later, I would say during like maternity leave is when I started to be like, okay, so, and based on my own experience, really, I wasn't having an experience. And I know some folks do where I was struggling with like my baseline functioning. Like my experience Mm -hmm. was like, I'm basically okay. It's Mm -hmm. a little dicey, but I'm, I'm working it out, but I'm not good, you know? Mm-hmm. And that was when I pursued the the coaching training as well, like on top of what I was already doing, because I was dealing with what I felt like were fulfillment questions. They they weren't questions mm-hmm. of my basic functioning. Yeah. If that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. Amelia, before we dive in deeper into that, though, if you don't mind, let's talk a little bit more about your pre-mamahood uh, stuff, because sure. I think... I think our listeners would be interested to hear more about um, drama therapy in particular. I mean, and this self-revelatory performance. Ha ha. That all sounds so great. It's really (laughs) so great. I'm happy to tell you a little bit about it. Um, So drama therapy, for folks who haven't heard of it or had a lot of experience, is It's the use of drama and theater techniques in a therapeutic context. So sometimes this work is performance oriented, like you're literally creating a show with Mm -hmm. a group of clients or with one client in the case, usually of self-rev, where they're working towards really clear therapeutic outcomes in the rehearsal and performance process. And there's something about other people witnessing it, like having an audience that's important therapeutically to what's happening, Mm -hmm. if that makes sense. It is. Yeah. Um, Hey, I listen to all those storytelling podcasts. Oh, my goodness. I can tell you for a fact that that's exactly what those people are doing. And they're just normal people. And some of them are, you know, professional, normal people. (laughs) Yes. And that I think we have this shared longing to connect around our stories. Like that's not news, you know? Mm -hmm. I think in some ways people are like, what is drama therapy? How interesting, tell me about that. And I'm like, it's kind of the thing we've been doing forever, (laughs) sort of more defined and quantified, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And then I think another important thing to say about it is that there's a lot of drama therapy, probably the majority of it 
is practiced in a way that's not performance oriented. So it's like pulling small techniques from that world, let's say role play or rehearsal for maybe a particularly daunting conversation. And you're using that in the context of a sort of regular therapeutic environment rather than doing a show. Sure. Yeah. Also makes sense. Yeah, I love it. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I th- it makes me think about the idea of perhaps it's mere metaphor, perhaps not, but life as performance mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. and uh, bringing, you know, I mean, so many of us are, are desperately trying not to, right? <laughs> we, we, we learned early and often, like, you're not supposed to show up or off or whatever, but then how right. do you have, a, how else do you have a way of expressing yourself authentically? So grabbing back onto the part of us that's naturally performative. I mean, that's what we're here for. Right. And that there's yeah. this deep way that we want to express ourselves. And mm-hmm. as you're saying, and I think it's very relevant to all the, all the motherhood stuff too, there are these really intense messages societally mm-hmm. about like, don't be too much. Don't be too big. Don't take up too much space. Like, don't make a fuss. Mm-hmm. It's like, I'm a person with a human heart. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. those rules don't work all the time. Yeah. I'm a work yeah. of art in progress, people. Exactly. <laughs> it's messy. Give me a moment. It gets messy. Exactly. <laughs> I'm here trying to discover myself and connect with other people. It's not always cute. Yeah. Exactly. Amelia, it seems really common. I'm just curious to know, why do moms lose their sense of self when they have their babies? So I'm not sure that I have like some sort of absolute truth answer to that, but I definitely have <laughs> well, some ideas. Well, there's a science, there's a sciencey answer. And then there's your answer, Amelia. Let's hear, we just want to hear your answer today. <laughs> yeah, no, totally. I can only give you my answer. So I'm glad that's the one that you want. Um, I, I think in, in a lot of ways, it comes back to these sort of societal and cultural ideas about what a mother is or is supposed to be or shouldn't be. (laughs) Um, And for the most part, we're, I mean, we have our first kid and we're stepping into that, that role transformation and that transition so intensely and immediately. Um, And there's this way, I think that we, we don't really, and this is the drama therapist in me, we don't really know the role until we inhabit it, right? There's a way of learning about it by doing, but we have these ideas of what the role is, what a good mom is supposed to act like, say, be, do, whatever that is. And we're like, how do it, for a while, it feels like a costume, I think, because we've never worn it before. Uh, So we don't have any personal experience. We just have these really strong notions about the fact that it's really important to do it right. And there's like this new person that we love more than anything in the world. And we're exhausted. Like there's a million factors Mm -hmm. (laughs) that sort of get in the way of maybe our most creative problem solving skills in the moment that we're doing this super high stakes transition. I have a question, Amelia. Yeah. It just occurred to me, and I've mulled over this and had ideas about this throughout my, pretty much my life, but certainly uh, beginning my parenting life and throughout this idea that um, our personal experience of parenting prior to having children is being parented. Mm -hmm. 
and that those are also our quote unquote role models <clears throat> for parenting. Yes, uh, for better or for worse, I, I, probably for both. better for worse, and also weird term. Not sure what it means, right? But right. Um, but then we, you know, that there's a sense in which we're already wearing those costumes, right? Layered over each other. What mm-hmm. when we dive in to do the work Absolutely. of doing it ourselves, as well as the social messaging of another sort, which does, you know, aside from our parents, mm-hmm. other people's parents, et cetera, et cetera. So it gets layered on, uh, I mean, religion, ugh. you know, it gets layered on, right? It gets layered on. And then absolutely half the ticket is just taking costumes off. <laughs> absolutely. Like, yeah. I'd love to wear this. It doesn't fit. I can't can't live in here. So what's the plan for me and for my family? Mm -hmm. And, and I think we know this, but it bears repeating. I think that like what our kids need from us is us, is our presence and our engagement. Mm -hmm. And we cannot give that to them or to ourselves or to the world or anyone else. If we're not here fully or authentically, like, and it's not like every moment has to be the fullest, most authentic thing. Uh, I think there's a lot of pressure there too that is not super helpful. But that if we are trying to be some other type of mom than who we really, really are, we're missing it. And they're missing us. I love all of those answers. That makes a lot of sense. It's like there's the pressure of what other people think think a mom is and then how you, how any one person individualizes that or internalizes that as being what they think they have to be. And it's just like expectations. We always come back to this word of expectations. Oh my goodness. It's like the pressure we put on ourselves to do stuff on top of being totally, totally exhausted. It just, it's really hard. Yeah. It's not a recipe for success in my opinion. <laughs> um, and it's not about success, right? But, but that I think also moms often feel really alone in that. I think because it can be such a consuming, isolating time, moms then on top of that are like, I'm the only mom that feels this way. She looks so <laughs> natural. She looks so together when really secretly, or maybe not so secretly, hopefully, all of us are like, I am learning this trial by fire. I'm doing my best. I hope it's good enough. <laughs> you know? <laughs> I always like to return to um, this thing that uh, Timmy Pereira, who we featured on our one of our earliest podcasts, and I, who are new moms together living on the same street with our babies, oh. um, we used to say about the girls when they were going through growth spurts that they were, you know, that there was this period of like disintegration and reintegration, mm-hmm. you know, kind of the the caterpillar goo turning into a butterfly next. And, but, but um, I like that as, as a metaphor for every single stage of development, including becoming a mother, because becoming a mother just pulls you apart physiologically, emotionally, and socially. And then you gradually reintegrate. Um, 
So it's normal and natural what we're talking about today. It's not definitely. It, it, it is a crisis, but it's a normal, natural crisis. Right. It's a crisis that everyone is going through alongside you. Yeah. Just in case yeah. you think it's just you. <laughs> yeah. I wonder, yeah. Amelia. Have you? I I wonder about those feelings of isolation. Do you think that? Um, that's a particularly uh, American Western kind of experience, or do you think it's uh, fairly common to be as part of any uh, real uh, transformative developmental period of our lives, no matter who you are, no matter where you live? Yeah. I'm so curious about that. I, I'm what, curious what's your about it too. I, I actually, I think it's both. Mm -hmm. So I can't speak with like lots of authority on other cultures, but I can say mm -hmm. as a person who cares about emotional wellness in America, the like individualist values of like, yeah. I'll just figure it out and I don't need any help. Uh, and, and the stuff that lives inside of that, right? When we unpack that, it's like these really strong beliefs about bootstrapping it and yeah. about the idea that only weak people need help. When what's true is we we all need help sometimes. We're mm -hmm. interconnected beings. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So I think part of it is certainly around, you know, individualistic cultures um, versus other types of cultural um, ways of being and values. And I think it also is sort of like you're saying, all of these developmental huge rites of passage which birth is a huge rite of passage. Like it's not just babies who are being born in that moment. Like it's mm -hmm. mothers too. Mm -hmm. um, and we don't hold that super well, in my opinion. Um, there is, I think like I'm the example I'm coming up with this in moment in this moment is like grief, which I think there is, that's part of this experience too. But you know, when you lose something or go through something and then you like walk down your street and it looks the same, but you feel totally different yeah like that returning to an environment that that doesn't reflect the seismic shifts that have occurred when you feel like you're the only person living in that reality and other people are just like going to the grocery store just like they were last week and the week before i think part of the isolation is about that mm-hmm yeah, well, and you were just going to the grocery store last week, right. so it's yeah, it's that that mushing up of like, wait, I just want to go to the grocery store. Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> oh gosh, I never get to go to the grocery store again like that. Right. Yes. Yeah. And and as you're saying, the reintegration, I think, is that's that's part of it in terms of my own work with moms and doing like birth experience and postpartum like processing is that there's some way that we need to acknowledge that experience and that huge developmental leap for parents and to gradually find a narrative that feels cohesive like hopefully validating or even empowering but at least organized in a way where at some point, moms can be like, okay, I see what happened. I can kind of connect the dots. Yeah, fantastic. Well, so that's the why. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about the how, if you don't mind. I didn't hear the beginning of that question. Um, well, I said, that's the why mm -hmm. that, you know, that we don't have this and we need this. Yes. Um, 
and we've been through this big thing, so we need this. Why don't you talk to us a little bit about how you do your work? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So often the way it happens is moms come to me uh, by some channel and they say kind of what I said at the top of this, I think, which was like, I'm okay. I'm okay. I just would like to be um, better, <laughs> you know? And, and I'm like, totally get it. Come on in. Um, and that, and that often what it's about is sort of an oppositional, like a dichotomous process where on the one hand, we're sorting through like, okay, this is really normal. And even though you feel really alone in this, like, let's, let's maybe question some ideas about the fact that you're the only mom who's gone through this ever, even though your experience is specific and unique to you and honoring that, but like pulling apart some of the shame and the isolation that tends to come like glommed on top of these feelings. And then I think, well, in the birth experience processing piece, if that's what we're working on specifically, it's usually about like, what did you expect versus what happened? And what were the like ideals you carried in about the right or wrong, y'all can't see my air quotes, but like good or bad way to give birth or to feed your child or whatever those stories are? Um, And how is carrying that message impacting your day to day? Is that a story that's true for you? Do you want to believe that? How's that working? Because often we're not conscious about what we're carrying into it. Like our expectations about what the birth is supposed to be, or even what parenting is supposed to be. All of it. They're not super conscious often until they don't get met. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So bringing those to consciousness and then being like, Mm -hmm. okay, so now that we can see all that, now that it's not all subterranean, what in this do you actually want? What needs to go away? What do we need to add And the other thing about it that I think is important is in terms of the birth experience itself, or even the day-to-day with an infant, often the mom doesn't have anybody who can witness that with her. Like often she's literally alone in it, or rightly so, her birth partners and helpers were also engaged in that experience from their own perspective, right? And a lot of what I do with moms is like, we're going to go back through this story as it is emotionally true for you. Like there's no jury here about what happened or like the capital T truth. What did you experience that you need witnessed and reflected and held? It's true. It's, it's, um, I know in working as a doula, there are times when I want to, and do frankly, do explain things that have happened that moms are curious about or didn't understand, like, mm-hmm. why did this happen? Or how did that, you know, yeah. and I have, I usually have a good answer to those things. I'm a pretty sophisticated, experienced doula. So I can say, well, this is what was happening yeah. physiologically with you. And this is why the hospital staff felt compelled to do this with you, you know, so there might be a reason, there might be a way to talk about it. But that's hopefully not perceived as a way to change the story. The story belongs to the mom, whatever the story is, right? 
and her partner has another story and I have another story. Absolutely. I I have a story too. It's my story. Mm -hmm. It's not, it's not the facts of the case. It's just my story. Um, And I have a place to go with my story. I do. I can go somewhere to be held and supported and get, you know, get that. Um, But mom's, often don't they feel often don't. that they have that place to go. Yeah. Yes. And I think it's not just that they don't, they also get asked casually about mm. the birth experience constantly. Like often new moms experience this like invitation to small talk that is actually huge talk. Yes. About things that they have not even had a moment to, to, integrate themselves. And so often the work sometimes is about like, how do you get to a place with this story where you get to set boundaries that work for you in conversations? Mm -hmm. Because it's actually, you get to decide how much, if at all, when, like that's yours. And those are very hard boundaries to set around experiences that we have not processed. Yeah, if I'm sure you might agree, Amelia and Sarah, if if we could do one small culture hack in America, it would be to um, erase that casual approach to sharing birth stories. It's not that people should not. It's that um, it's that they should not be obligated. Right. Like as you're saying that, yeah. it, it's really an issue of consent to me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. And we don't think about it that way. We think about it as like, I'm making conversation. I'm asking how you are. And I'm sure that people are well-intended in that. Um, <laughs> yeah, the same way rubbing someone's pregnant belly without permission is well intended. Exactly. It's, just, it's kind of a violation, right? Absolutely. Someone needs to open the door and say, would you like to hear about my birth story? Right. Or like if you're the person checking in and you're close to say like, I love you. I've been thinking about you. Like, yeah. is there anything you want to say? Or yeah. what can I do? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. There are so many things we can uh, potentially approach a new parent with that aren't, hey, tell me about the train wreck that you just went through, you know? Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, give me all the, the, the dramatic and traumatic details. I mean, it's just not really loving or fair, despite the quote-unquote intention, right? to ask people to re-traumatize themselves if they've experienced trauma, as an example. Exactly. Um, or or talk about how deeply spiritually wide open they were wrenched and the amazing love and intimacy they felt. I mean, you know, we don't we don't casually talk about sex to each other. I mean, some people do and that's perfectly okay if it's part of a relationship, but we don't, you know, love making isn't the thing that we give the intimate details of to our next door neighbor. Right. Right. And it's not because we're prudes, <laughs> although 
that is also in the world, right? <laughs> Sadly. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> Esther, you crack me up. <laughs> totally. Um, Amelia, one thing that's on our agenda that I want to touch on is this notion of emotional multitasking. Yeah. So I think in some ways... That's the phrase that came to me as I was kind of working through my own experience and 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 working with other parents. And it was this sort of this acknowledgement that we have these really contradictory emotional experiences as parents. And that for me, it's like simultaneous. Like I remember when mine was, you know, in her like first year. And I would have these moments of like awe and love and just be like, you're so amazing. At the same time as I was having the thought and the feeling, like, this is so boring. This is so boring. <laughs> oh, my God. You mean I have to sit here for 45 more minutes? Right? Like, And now it's, I mean, like, this puzzle again? Like, no. You know what I mean? And and I know in some ways that's, like, funny and those are sort of light things, and they are. Um, but I think a lot of what happens, it's back to this piece of feeling like we're alone in it. Like, it's so taboo to say, like, this is boring, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. and to acknowledge, like, how truly tedious and repetitive some of it is. It's not yeah. that I don't want to do it, but I'm not excited about it. You know what I mean? <laughs> and, and speaking of, like, performing, I think there is this pressure, like, it should all be this juicy, joy-filled, like, mama goddess moment. Um, and it isn't. And I think in terms of the the multitasking, like I'll, I'll try to give an example that like, let's say you're with your kid and you suddenly find yourself in like an Instagram rabbit hole on your phone. I've never done that. I speak from no experience at all, but just hypothetically <laughs> that's happened. Okay. And, right. And these, these small moments where like you realize that they've said mommy like 19 times before you register it. <laughs> And you like, remember where you are. There's like a whole nother conversation about technology, right? But that you kind of come to a little bit. And I think often what takes us out of being present, it's not the momentary distractions themselves, but there's this like miniature shame spiral. I think that a lot of us have afterwards where we put our phone down and make the choice to re-engage. But now we're like all in our heads about parenting and how we should be parenting and how we feel like we're really doing it. And before we know it, we've like missed another 20 minutes on top of that first two. <laughs> yeah. I'm only <laughs> laughing. No, it's funny. <laughs> it is funny. I mean, it is I'm funny. sure there is, there isn't a parent in the world who cannot relate to this. And my daughter and I have this, this little joke that we do with each other periodically. So some, you know, I mean, she's 40 and we still do this. Um, we don't just come up and say, hi, mom, or hey, mom. We go, mom, 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 hey, mom, 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 mom. Oh, absolutely. Right. There's <laughs> this assumption the, that the you just exist for me. <laughs> the Part of the joke is, you know, the kid is not going to give up. And they're going to just be so persistent that even when you turn to them and even when you look at them and even when you give them your full attention, they don't realize it. And they just keep going, mom, 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 mom. Exactly, right? <laughs> because they can't believe that you're actually 
they actually turn to you. Like, I'm right here. Yes. They're still yes. like, mommy, mommy, mommy. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, and yeah. yeah, and it is funny. And I think that's also... Yeah, it's good to have a laugh in the midst of all this guilt. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think that's part of it is if we can pan out a little bit, we can see that it's funny and that yeah. it's kind of ridiculous and absurd for us to be carrying this shame and guilt around like being a person essentially, and having a life <laughs> that doesn't completely and totally revolve around their every moment to moment need. Yes, my daughter taught me something that I didn't realize existed. Because, of course, when this is happening to me, I could hear the kid. I was assiduously ignoring them for the moment. <laughs> right. Whereas, like, no, thank you. <laughs> Yes. Whereas my daughter tells me, and she found this out about herself as uh, a young woman way before she um, had kids, that when she's reading, she can't hear. She Mm. literally can't hear you. If she's in a book, she's all the way in her. She she had a boyfriend get mad at her Mm. and and stomp off and really be pissed off because She said to him later, like, I did not hear you. Like, I had no idea you were there. I did not hear you. engaged with something else. (laughs) So, and this was so great for me because this is a very sort of sideways healing moment because I remember walking up to my mother who would be sitting at the kitchen table, reading a novel, drinking her coffee, biting her fingernails, and I would be standing at her ear doing mom, 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 right? And she could not pull herself out of the novel. Mm. And I would be experiencing a certain amount of anxiety as the five, six, seven, eight. Absolutely. Like I'm right here. Hello. Yeah. uh, Well, you can't see me. Yeah. You know, (laughs) but now I realize, no, she could kind of, but she was deep in that thing. She was really deep in that thing. And um, and I was interrupting it. Right. <laughs> of course, she was always deep in that thing. So when could I get a word in it twice? I don't know. Right. No wonder you were interrupting it, right? <laughs> yes. Uh, yes. <laughs> and I, so. yeah, absolutely. And I think that all of that is, is such a relatable moment because, like, we are going to get distracted, And we are going to have stuff that we need to do or want to do, including but not limited to like working a full-time job out of the home, whether by choice Mm -hmm. or economic necessity, like people do things, parents do Mm -hmm. things. But I think the growth is around like how quickly can we bring ourselves back to presence, like back into connection. And that shame spiral or distraction spiral or whatever we want to call it It doesn't do anything except keep us in disconnection longer. Part of what I'm curious about is um, if we're calling it distraction, (laughs) uh, when do we get to disconnect? You know, I mean, when is it okay to just not be on call 24-7? I mean, absolutely. Again, I think my my personal answer is there's a kind of a developmental flow to all this. But I do think that even the newest of moms can be struggling with the full on of 
you know, the kind of connection that we might believe is required of us with a newborn or a two-year-old or an eight-year-old. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think these are, these questions are kind of the heart of it. And certainly in some ways they're a matter of opinion. And then in other ways, there's a lot of sort of work and research to suggest that some of it is pretty real. Um, But my answer is that I think part of it is around stopping this false separation between like what my kid needs and what I need. Like there's this idea that self-care or taking a moment or saying like, Hey, I hear you. I'm going to, yeah. Like I'm, I can be with you in five minutes. Like I'm right here in this room with you, like communicating to your kid. Like I see you, I'm still here. I'm still your mom and -hmm. I'm doing this other thing. Mm -hmm. Right. (laughs) Um, Yeah. And that, and I think the heart of it is there's this, idea somehow that me taking care of myself or moms doing what they need to recharge, regenerate, that that is somehow separate or selfish. When the truth is what our kids need is for us to be okay, is for us to be well. And from that perspective, like taking your moment, reading your book, taking your walk, whatever the self-care momentarily or more long-term looks like for you, that is not some kind of like dalliance from being a parent. Right. It's connected yeah. to what your kid and your family needs. I wonder how we work with the community, which includes partners. Absolutely. Uh, family members, um, you know, childbirth classes for people, you know, how do we work with the community to acknowledge this reality for women and get, I hate to use this term, I actually hate to use this term, but I'm going to use it, buy-in, as it were, because in my experience with two different partners, you know, of dads, they didn't have any trouble walking away, taking time for themselves, doing whatever mm-hmm. was on their agenda. Right. So, so you can hear in my voice, like I never could, I never felt comfortable doing that. And, you know, that's nothing new. Like, uh, I think it's was very common, still is very common. It's not the truth in every family which is really gratifying to see more and more in the work that I do. Yes. But, but I do, I do feel like we've got a long way to go before others take up the kind of space that moms are expected to take up all the time, be available for all the time so that moms don't have to. Right. Right. Yeah. So that, so that there's, another uh, other that children turn to with their stuff because they will, you know, absolutely. And they're happy, they're happy to, if it's actually available to them. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I think you're so right that these um, sort of the parenting roles, right. Have a direct relationship with gender roles. Um, mm-hmm. They absolutely do. And that doesn't mean that, dads don't step up. That also doesn't mean that like all parents or families are organized in this sort of heterosexual way, right? We know they're not. Um, (laughs) But that the mother role, 
like motherhood as it is. This is another rant of mine that I'm going to do in a very <laughs> short period of time, which is I feel like we live in a culture that reveres motherhood, but does very little to actually support mothers in doing mm-hmm. the job. Right. And yeah. that yeah. part of that, I think, is about the roles conversation that we were having earlier, which is that I think the the paradigm shift that is hopefully happening, but that has to continue happening is that motherhood does not have to be this like working model for self-sacrifice. That it can (laughs) be an endeavor that is rooted for real, for real in self-compassion. It really can. Yeah. But our societal models about what motherhood is or what it's supposed to be are really gnarly. (laughs) And... (laughs) I think often it's not just that other that the other caretakers aren't stepping up, but also that our own idea of what a mother is supposed to be and our enactment of that pushes out people who could be closer and help more. Oh, so nicely put. Thank you for that. Yeah. And then I agree. family dynamics are, are, you know, they get solidified rather quickly. That doesn't mean they can't change. But if the first three months, six months, year, you know, mama's like, I got it. I know how to do it. I can do it. And also the breastfeeding, if that's how you're feeding your kid, creates a very real dynamic of like, I literally am the one who's got it, you know? (laughs) Um, But finding a way to find some agility around those roles and to realize that the enactment of self-sacrifice that's not the measure of who you are as a mom or a parent. Easier said than done, but we have to talk about it to do it. Why don't you talk a little bit more about this phrase that you like to use, which I love, which is good enough mothering is actually the best mothering. So that comes out of psych research from... I believe the 50s or the 60s, um, Winnicott is the guy that sort of made the good enough mothering concept famous. Um, yes. And what... Love that guy. I oh, love that guy. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Heart emoji. Um, and and really that theory has life if you choose it. Like there's a way that... So I'll talk about the theory first, but the basic piece is that the small moments where mothers or primary caregivers, whoever they are, the small moments where we're not able to fully attune. And that doesn't mean we're not paying attention. Like take an infant, for example, they can't tell you what they need, verbally at least. And so the moments when a mom like thinks a baby's hungry when actually a baby's tired, right? And takes an action that doesn't actually meet the need. Those Mm -hmm. moments of discrepancy are how infants and children and people eventually, they're how they learn to cope with the space between what they need and the world's ability to meet it in that moment, whatever it is. And so it's not like we could be perfect parents if we tried, but if we were, it would not be as good for them (laughs) as being good enough. Because being good enough is how they learn over time, 
like self-regulation and self-soothing and the really the ability to cope with being on the planet. Yes. This doesn't mean that we neglect our children. Yes, let me be very children. clear about that. Let me get close to the mic. That does not mean that we neglect our children. What it means. Right. This means that we don't beat our, the shit out of ourselves when we cannot or just did not show up in a way that we thought we could have, should have, whatever. Exactly. Yeah. We do the best we can. And I think the, the, the part within that that's really key is we accept the reality that we cannot perfectly attune or meet every need in every moment. It's yeah, not possible. And, and the world is bigger than that, by the way. Sure. We're not the only person in this child's life. Eventually, soon, there will be other people who actually do show up for them in wonderful ways. Oh my goodness. That we, that we don't even want to, but even if we did, cannot and maybe should not. So <laughs> absolutely. You know, it's the world is big. And I think mothers, it's just my opinion that we mothers can suffer from this idea in that way. Like, oh, there's just nobody else. Well, actually, I mean, if not for some of my teachers, if not for my dad, if not for uncles and aunties, you know, I mean, and, and the neighborhood kid absolutely, who showed up in a way that was really necessary. I mean, the world is big. The world is big. Um, and part of the, the moments, part of that good enough mothering that's so important for the kid too, is that it's not just that they learn how to cope with those moments, but they learn that they can. Mm-hmm. That like yes. there is this emphasis in parenting literature right now all over about like resilience and grit and how do you build that in your kid? And you really don't, in my opinion, there's nothing in particular you need to do because it's kind of built in to the fact that none yeah. of it runs perfectly, but yeah. it running well enough is perfect in terms of what they need. Don't sequester your kids. Yes. Let them roam. <laughs> Let them find other people. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. And you know, that idea of the enriched environment, right? It involves and includes people. (laughs) Absolutely. Well, Amelia, thank you a ton for coming on. Oh my goodness. Thank you for um, having a laugh with me. I often do seem to like to have laughs with our guests. Absolutely. It's important. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I'm just really happy and impressed with you and your work. Mm -hmm. It's a familiar kind of work to me and modalities that I work in for myself Mm -hmm. as as well as with my clients on occasion, if if it's possible. And that the fact that you're giving such a nice focus and in-depth space for this is just really great. Yeah. Thanks for coming on. Thanks so much. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. It's our pleasure. Okay. Well, listeners, thanks for tuning in. You can uh, subscribe to our podcast. We have a website, fourthtrimester.com. 
and we're on all kinds of wonderful podcasting platforms. We'd love it if with your subscription, you can maybe pitch us a buck per episode or something of that nature. We're doing this out of our pockets currently, and um, we do it for love. But that doesn't mean <laughs> we couldn't use some support ourselves. It doesn't cost nothing to bring you these shows. So it was great to have Amelia today, and we look forward to hearing from our listeners. We're on Facebook, etc. So take care, everybody, and we will see you soon. You can subscribe to this podcast in order to hear more from us. Thank you for listening, everyone, and I hope you'll join us next time on the fourth trimester. The theme music on this podcast was created by Sean Trott. Hear more at soundcloud.com slash Sean Trott. Special thanks to my true loves, my husband Ben, daughter Penelope, and baby girl Evelyn. Don't forget to share the fourth trimester podcast with any new and expecting parents. I'm Sarah Trott. Goodbye for now.